0: Great to be with you guys. You can turn to Judges chapter six. Actually, is where we'll start. Most of the time, we'll be in chapter seven. We'll be looking at the life of of Gideon today. And you don't have to look hard to find an example of a guy like Gideon in the news today. There's a lot of sad stories in the news every week. But I noticed among the sad stories in the in the news this week, there are now accusations of inappropriate behavior against Morgan Freeman and. That's not as sad as like school shootings or threats of war or things like that. But it, it's still sad because, man, what a great actor. I love some of the roles that he's played. He's this actor that I always look forward to seeing on screen. And, and, and you hear these accusations and it just breaks your heart. I mean, you grieve for the women who are affected. I can't imagine what it would feel like to go get to work with someone you, you view as like a hero. He's this incredible, wise father figure on screen. And then it sounds like he's a creep in real life. or, and, and, then, and then you grieve for the legacy left behind by this man. I mean, if these accusations prove true, what are we going to remember him for? And not his incredible body of work. Not these incredible roles he played. All of that legacy torpedoed by sin late in life. That's so common, that you have men or women who live an incredible life, doing incredible work, and it, it seems like they have built a legacy that will inspire people for generations to come, and then towards the tail end of their life, they give into sin, they give into to temptation, and they blow it all. And that's what we're going to see in Gideon today. From Gideon, we're going to learn this lesson that your legacy is not complete until your life is over. Until you're finished on this earth, you are not done establishing your legacy for those who will come behind you. And so we want to learn from Gideon this morning. We're going to actually look at two moments in his life, both a great success and a great failure. We're going to try to learn from both of those because they're incredibly relevant to our lives today. And so as we think about Gideon, We meet him in the book of Judges. It is not a pleasant book to read in general. It is a sad book because it records a history of Israel during a time where basically they are going through a cycle. They're on spin cycle in the washing machine of, of history. They, they keep giving in to sin and it brings judgment over and over again. And when we're introduced to Gideon, they're in one of those low periods of God's judgment upon them for their sin. So if you look with me, let's pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. Says, then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And so the Israelites, they gave in to sin, idolatry, wickedness, all kinds of awful sins, and so God judged them by turning them over to the Midianites. And the Midianites had a, a massive Army in the ancient world, a very large army that rode on camels, and that sounds unimpressive to us, but in the ancient world, a camel was basically a tank. If you didn't have a camel, if you were on foot, you could not stop an army. On camels, And so for the Israelites, when the Midianites would come into town, the Israelites would literally hide in caves. That's how terrified they were. When we first meet Gideon, we won't read all of his story, but he is actually threshing grain down in basically a cave structure to hide himself. He doesn't want the Midianites to come and steal his stuff. So the Israelites are terrified of the Midianites. And so they call out to God, God, please deliver us. God, please rescue us. And so God is going to call Gideon. To deliver the Israelites. Now, what do we know about Gideon? Well, thinking in our categories, if you will, the first thing to know about Gideon is he is a believer, he is a child of God. You can think of him as a Christian. He believes in God by the time that we meet him. That's how the Christian life always begins. It begins with belief. Now, for Gideon, it was belief in the God of the Bible, that the God of the Bible would fulfill his promises. For us, the Christian life begins similarly with belief, but we know more than Gideon did, so we need to believe more. We live after the cross. So for us, the Christian life begins when we believe that God sent his son Jesus to die for our sins and rise from the dead so we could have eternal life. The moment that you believe that, that you are persuaded that that is true, you enter into the family of God just as Gideon did. So you'll you'll see Gideon in heaven if you want to think about it that way. So by the time we meet him, he is already a, a child of God through faith. But the thing is, sometimes we think about belief or or faith as just the beginning of the Christian life. So we enter through faith in the gospel. Now we get on to other things. But that's not actually how it works. Faith is for all of the Christian life. Really, the measure of how you're doing as a Christian is found in the growth of your faith. That's God's goal for the rest of your life. You entered into his family through faith in the gospel. Now the challenge for the rest of your life is to grow in your faith in God. To be stretched and deepened in your trust. Will you trust God more and more in the trials and temptations of life? If you will, then God can do great things through you. Okay, so we're going to see in Gideon's life a test of his faith. Actually, two. Two times when God tested his trust. One, he's going to do well. One, he is not. And so let's jump in and look at the first test in Gideon's Life. This is the one we're all familiar with. God gave Gideon this test. Go defeat an undefeatable enemy called the Midianites. So let's pick up that part of the story, chapter 7. This is where our story gets exciting. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon. Jerubbaal, you'll see that name. That's just a, a nickname his dad gave him. Same guy, same Gideon. That is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Mora in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now let's pause for a moment. What's happened so far? Gideon is told by God, Go deliver your people from the Midianites. So Gideon does what anyone would do when asked to deliver his people. He says, Well, how many soldiers have I got? And if you add it all up, Gideon had 33,000 soldiers. It's a pretty sizable army, pretty Big army, right? 33,000 Israelites with him. It sounds big until you consider how many the Midianites had. We find out later accounts. The Midianites marched with an army of 135,000 men. 135,000 plus countless camels. So an incredibly large army that Gideon faced. If you do the math, the odds were stacked against Gideon four to one. Four to one is not great odds when you're trying to win a battle. But it's, it's possible. I mean, you do hear about sometimes in history when a great general and brave soldiers won a battle with four to one odds. God doesn't want that to happen here. He doesn't want to leave it where Gideon and his soldiers could be valiant and brilliant and win. And so look at what God does next. Verse 3. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you. He shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you. He shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as the dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now, the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped, and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. So think for a moment, numerically, about what's happened. If 33,000 soldiers against 135,000 soldiers, 4 to 1 odds, those are bad odds, but God says you could still win this with a really good battle plan and really valiant soldiers, and then you could take the credit, and I don't want that. So God cuts Gideon's men down to 10,000. Those are 13 to 1 odds. It's really bad. But God says still. I could see you guys really doing well and taking the credit. So God arbitrarily cuts it down to 300. And people wonder, is there some significance to these guys lapping at the water? Not that we know. It's just some random test that God uses to widow it down to 300 men. now we're at 450 to 1 odds. That's 10 times worse than the defenders of the Alamo faced. And you know what happened to all of them. You don't win with 450 to one odds. That's a suicide mission. And yet God says, trust me, Gideon, I'm going to give you victory. Go. And so this incredible test, it begins with an absolutely impossible task. Go conquer an army of 135,000 with numerous camels with your 300 men. So Gideon now faces a choice. What is he going to do? Is he going to trust the Lord with this incredibly difficult task? Well, the answer is yes. You, you know. Gideon is going to say, okay, let's go. Look at verse 16. He, that is Gideon, divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them. With torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise, and behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpet all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. Now think for a moment about what they're saying. So Gideon takes his 300 men, and he hands each one of them a trumpet, and each one of them a torch that's lit with a jar on it. Sounds great until you realize what's not in their hands. A weapon. They have no weapons. You can't kill somebody with a trumpet, at least in not any way that I know. So basically Gideon took his pathetically small army and took away their weapons. Now they just have a trumpet and a torch and then he spreads them out along a big hillside. So they're not even in a defensive position. So basically they're sitting ducks. This, this doesn't make any sense at all, but this is a battle plan God gave him. It's an incredibly risky battle plan. God says, do this. I know it doesn't make sense. Trust me, do it. And so Gideon does, and the result of Gideon's faith in this incredibly impossible task, an incredibly risky battle plan, is an absolute victory. Look at verse 22. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beshetah towards Zarah, as far as the edge of Abel Morath by Tabath. The entire army of Midian kills itself. You see, God had been working behind the scenes. He had been sowing fear in the hearts of the Midianites against Gideon, against the Israelites. And so when Gideon has the men break the the pitchers that are over the torches, all of a sudden 300 torches shine instantaneously all around the valley and 300 trumpets blow. And the Midianites conclude, well, if that's 300, then there's probably a thousand men with each of them. We're doomed. And so the Midianites, in fear, they panic. And in their panic, they misunderstand what is happening, and they begin to battle one another. And the result, it tells us later in the text, is of that 135,000, 120,000 die at their, own t- at their own hands immediately right there in the valley. So wipe each other out. Israelites don't have to do anything. Then, then the few who are left run away and the Israelites chase them down and capture and, and kill those kings that had been, been threatening them. And the result is from this moment on in biblical history, Midian is never a threat to Israel again. It was a complete and absolute victory that Gideon won. You could not have had a better victory than this. He trusted the Lord when it seemed unreasonable and God delivered him. And the lesson that we learn from this is that when we exercise faith in God, as believers, we're already in the family of God. When we choose daily to trust God, our faith can overcome impossible odds. In reality, it's really not our faith. It's the one we're trusting in. God can use our faith to do incredible things. And for some of us, there may be those climactic moments where we face the Midianites, but for most of us, it's going to be, in, it's going to be victories that most people don't see. And so I, I've been here at Southwood for a long time now, and I've seen some of these Gideon-level victories in people's lives, but they're not the kind of things that like everybody talks about. They're not the things that make it on the news generally, but it's victories like seeing men and women caught up in an addiction So badly that the logical part of your brain kind of has concluded, yeah, they're lost. This is over for them. It's probably going to take their life. It's that bad. But then you see God move and God work and, and He begins to work in their hearts and challenge them and, and they begin to believe that they can get better and they reach out for help and particularly through like our celebrate recovery ministry, they begin to go and, and they begin to have people pour into their lives. And all of a sudden, like four or five years pass and you see that person volunteering at Celebrate Recovery and they're sober and they're walking with the Lord and now they're helping other people out of addiction and you ask yourself, how could that have happened? How could God have taken someone who I was convinced was was done and turned their life around so radically that now they're actually a resource to other people? Well, that's because God can work miracles in our lives when we'll trust him. That's a Gideon-level victory. I've seen it also... Here at Southwood, with men and women who have struggled with some kind of chronic disease or painful disease that's not going away anytime soon, especially ones that realistically could take their lives. And now, that, facing a disease like that, that's not like a uniquely Christian thing. People throughout the world deal with chronic, horrible disease and illnesses But what is remarkable is when you see a believer facing some kind of horrible disease, painful disease, and not only do they trust that God is going to be with them, but their trust is so deep that they are actually a a source and a voice of joy to other people. And they reach out and try to encourage other people and they give hope to other people. And you look at that and you marvel and you ask, where is that from? Because the world can't explain that part. The world can certainly explain getting sick. But the world can't explain that in the midst of that, when it feels hopeless and the world would say, you have every right to be bitter. You have every right to, to give up on life. And yet here's this person who says, I'm going to continue to trust God and I'm going to continue to walk in peace and joy and try to be a blessing to the people around me. And you look at that and say, man, that is a Gideon level victory. That is won because that person in the midst of their pain and illness continues to trust God day after day, that he is enough and that he will provide. And so you see these Gideon-level victories won by very common men and women of faith who choose to wake up each and every day and say, God, I will trust you. In the midst of, of pain, of suffering, of all of this difficulty, I'll choose to trust you. God can win incredible victories in our lives if we'll choose to trust him. That's what he did in Gideon's life. It's incredibly inspiring to us. I really wish that Gideon's story ended here. This would be a much more enjoyable morning if it did. This is a story we tend to know about Gideon. We don't tend to pay attention to the second story, which we'll look at now. You see, Gideon faced another test of his faith in life, and it was very different. The circumstances were completely the opposite. It was not a test in the midst of struggle and fear and anxiety. It was a test that came in the midst of prosperity. When everything was good for Gideon, when he'd won his great victory, that's when the Lord's second test came into his life. So look at chapter 8. Let's look at verse 22 says then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son also, your son 's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. So they offer Gideon the throne, all right, Gideon, you won this battle you 're incredible we 're going to give you the throne and everything that comes with it within an ancient world you got a lot if you were on the throne. so basically they are giving Gideon the opportunity to reach out and get his you 've won, so take take Gideon all the wealth, all the power. All the pleasure that you deserve, be our king. Now, there was just one problem with that offer. The throne of Israel was not theirs to give. Israel was a theocracy. The throne belonged to God. God had actually told them in Deuteronomy 17, hundreds of years before Gideon, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and you've taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the other nations around us, Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. God hadn't chosen Gideon to be king. Now God had blessed Gideon immensely. He'd chosen Gideon to be this great military general, to to be this great deliverer. But God did not choose Gideon to be king. And so the people did not have the right to crown him. And yet the tragedy is, is that the people don't really care what God had said. They wanted a king so that they could be like every other nation, so that they could feel secure and safe and respectable. And so they want that so bad they're willing to rebel against God and appoint Gideon. And so what does Gideon do? Now he faces this choice, whether or not he's going to trust God, whether or not he's going to say, I am content with what God has given me. I'm not going to reach out and take all I can get. Well, Gideon, unfortunately, is going to choose not to trust God. He's going to choose to do exactly what the world would tell him. The the world would always tell you, never leave money and power on the table. I mean, like if you have earned it, take it. Take the spoils of your victory. Enjoy all the pleasure and fame and possessions you can get in this life. So Gideon, come on, bro. You did it. Great success. Reach out and get yours. And that's what Gideon does. He chooses to get his. Now, ironically, it begins with Gideon Saying, I won't be your king. He, he begins with the right words. Look at verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. That's the right thing to say, Gideon. If you would have stopped there, still, we would have had a good story. Unfortunately, his words are a lie. He says the right words because he knows the right words matter. But the actions you'll see in a moment show us he didn't mean any of this. So look at what Gideon does starting in verse 24. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we will surely give them. So they spread out a garment and every one of them threw an earring from his spoil and the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the neck bands that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made it into an affad and placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, so that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore, and and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. There's a lot of stuff going on here. When Gideon says, no, I won't be king, he doesn't mean it. How do we know that? Because he collects a king's fortune. 1,700 shekels of gold is, let me look this up, about 40 pounds of gold. 43 pounds of gold. That's a lot today. In the ancient world, 43 pounds of gold was a king's fortune. It's an incredible amount of wealth. And so he accumulates a a king's fortune. He dresses like a king. We're told that he, he collected all those nice robes. Pendants, jewelry from the kings of Midian. Why? So he could put it in a drawer? No. So he could wear it. Gideon went around dressed as a king. What else are we told? He builds a harem fit for a king. Verse 30, when we're told he has many wives, that's not because there was a surplus of women in the ancient world. People didn't have many wives unless they were kings. Actually, even if you were really, really wealthy, you might have a few wives, but many wives, you only had that if you were a despot if you were a king who took everything he wanted. And that's what Gideon is doing. And what's really ironic is when we go back to Deuteronomy, God warned them hundreds of years ahead of time. He's talking about a king. He, the king, must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And yet that's exactly what Gideon does. And so not only is he choosing to be a king, which God had not allowed him to do, but he's being a corrupt king. A wicked king. So. He collects a king's fortune. He dresses like a king. He builds a harem fit for a king. And worst of all, he solidifies his power by building an afad. And it's not a word we're really familiar with. An afad was what a priest wore in ancient Israel. It was a garment that was elaborate. It had a lot of gold on it. It was a symbol of God's authority and power in the nation of Israel. So why would Gideon create this, this priestly garment? Well, so that you would look at him as a priest. He was claiming spiritual authority in the nation of Israel. He's basically telling the nation, I'd love to have you worship God as long as it's at my house. You have to come to me. And, and that works so well, in fact, that we're told in the text we read, eventually the nation of Israel just starts worshiping the Afad as God. This is our God. Look at all that gold. Looks amazing. Here's what will deliver us. And so Gideon ushers the nation back into idolatry because he wants all the power. I want you to come to me when you want to talk to God. So he had said, no, I don't want to be your king. But then he acted like a king all of his life until towards the end of his life, he just stops lying about it completely. Look at verse 31. All pretending is done. His concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he named him Abimelech. Abimelech in Hebrew means my dad is king. So what is Gideon saying to the nation when you offered me a king and I, to be king and I said, no, 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 I meant yes, yes, yes. And now let's just, let's not pretend anymore. I am your king, sure enough. So he has made himself king. He has given in to temptation. He's failed his second test of faith. And I want us to, to see really clearly, I just want to make sure you're paying very close attention. What were the circumstances in Gideon's life when he failed? It was not suffering. It was actually pleasure. And I I think that we go through this life and and we assume that we are most likely to fail when life is hardest. Often people do fail when life is really hard. That's true. However, statistically speaking, if we look at the great examples in scripture, when are people most likely to fail? When life is easy. Gideon. David. David. Solomon, when did they fail? When life was easy. When things were going well. Why? Because when life is easy, you're tempted not to trust in God. Why do I need God? Life is going well. I don't need his help today. I've got things under control. I've done a good job. Life is going my way. And so you grow spiritually apathetic. And you begin to just drift along with life. And that's what sets you up for your failure. And so we have to be paying attention to the fact. That when life finally is going our way, we cannot spiritually check out. Because that's when temptation will really come on strong. We're most liable to fail when life is going the best. That's when Gideon succumbed to temptation. And what are the results? When Gideon gives in to this sinful temptation, the result is a a legacy of sin and suffering for everyone Gideon touched. Everyone whom Gideon spent time with suffers because of his choice. First, the nation as a whole. Look at verse 33. It came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. When it says they did not remember, it's not that they literally forgot. What it's meaning is that they chose not to be grateful to God, they chose not to to give gratitude to to God for delivering them. They choose instead, hey, I'd rather worship a different God. I'd rather worship Baal. Why does that keep happening? Why did the Israelites keep worshiping Baal? Because Baal is the popular God to worship. And worshiping Baal in the ancient world was very fun. There was a lot of sex and a lot of feasting mixed into his worship. And so people desired to worship Baal. And so the Israelites, they stopped giving thanks to God. They go back to worshiping Baal. And what is the irony? What were they doing that brought the Midianites in the first place? Worshiping Baal. And so they are right back to where they began. And judgment is coming soon upon them. And so you think about Gideon's life. Incredible victory that had no enduring consequence. You see that? An incredible victory that didn't change anything. They go right back into worshiping Baal after him. Why? Because he led them astray. For the sake of power, he ushered them back into idolatry. So the nation collapses. There is no enduring good that Gideon won for the nation of Israel. They go right back to where they were. Second, his family self-destructs. Look with me. Chapter 9. Gideon, we're told, has 71 sons. You've met one of them. His name was Abimelech. My dad is king. Apparently, Abimelech assumed that his name meant he would be king when Gideon dies. And so when Gideon dies, Abimelech begins to pull power together he he creates alliances with a number of cities and those cities give him power and as soon as he has power look what he does chapter 9 verse 5 then he went to his father's house at ophrah and killed his brothers the sons of jerubbabel that is gideon 70 men on one stone 70 men on one stone. He kills all of his brothers with the exception of one. So Abimelech wants to amass power. He wants to keep power. So he creates these alliances and then goes and kills Gideon's entire family, all his brothers. He kills them all. That gets God's attention. God is really angry at this point. And so the story turns on Abimelech. These alliances he's made with these cities, they go sour, and Abimelech and these cities end up fighting one another. And for a while, Abimelech has the upper hand. He kills an incredible number of men, women, and children in horrific ways until towards the end of chapter 9, he gets what's coming to him. Look at verse 52. So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his school. So Abimelech's dead. And now think about it for a moment. How much of Gideon's family's left? Pretty much none. This is a Quentin Tarantino film. Everyone dies in horrifically violent ways. Why? Because Gideon chose sin. He chose sin on the tail end of his life. And he ruined the nation and he destroyed his family. When you look at at Gideon's story, sometimes we think of Gideon as a hero. He was a hero for one day. He played the villain for the rest of his life. When we look at Gideon's life and try to learn lessons from it, I think the key lesson that I want us to learn this morning is that our legacy is not over until our life is over. You don't get to retire from the Christian life. Every day that you are still breathing, you are feeding into the legacy you will leave behind. Our challenge this morning is to not fall prey to Gideon's failure. Don't get the ball 99 yards down the field and then fumble. Because if you do that, you get no points. Nothing. Complete waste. That's Gideon. His life is a complete and utter waste. Why? Because towards the tail end of it, he gave in to temptation and he ruined the nation and his family. And it's important to recognize you're still going to see Gideon in heaven. Because eternal life, you cannot lose that. But the impact he had on the world and the impact he had on his family, that was all lost because of his sin. And so for us, as we think about our lives, I don't know how old you are. A lot of different ages in this room. We need to recognize no matter how old we are, if we're still living, there is still a legacy to be fought for. We are still in the midst of this battle. We are still facing the Midianites. And sometimes you face the Midianites when life is at its best. And it seems like things are peaceful and joyous, and yet that's when temptation is at its worst. And you have to fight for faithfulness in the midst of those good times as much as you have to fight for faithfulness in the midst of bad times. And so for each of us, as we think about what does a Christian life look like, it's daily fighting for faithfulness. It is every day waking up and choosing to trust God today So that over the long years of our lives, we can leave a positive legacy for those who come after us. Now for me, when I try to learn from Gideon, when I think about his life, there are lots of senses in which hopefully I'm leaving a good legacy. But this is the one that's most important. I I care about the church, but I care most about my family. God has entrusted these two kids to me. And so what I want to recognize is that Gideon did really well for a long time and then he failed and the result was all of his kids killed each other. I don't want to leave that kind of legacy for my kids. I want to stay faithful throughout the long years of my life so that I bless Luke and Gracie for generations to come. So when you think about your legacy, what I want to challenge you to do is to recognize that your legacy isn't going to be Primarily built by these climactic moments that happen it 's going to be built by the small choices you make each and every day, whether today you 're going to trust God, will you wake up tomorrow morning and trust that God is good? will you trust that he has been good to you will he tr- will you trust that his promises are enough for you? will you trust him today with your life and be faithful in the little things today if you 'll do that? day after day after day, then you will leave a legacy behind you that makes a positive impact on people for generations to come. Now, very practically, as you think about your legacy, there may be some of you here that you look back at your life and you say, wow, I have failed. I have left behind me a legacy of pain and and destruction and unfaithfulness. There is great news for you this morning. You're still breathing, so your story is not done yet. God can rewrite your legacy if today and tomorrow and every day thereafter you will choose today I'm going to walk in trust I'm going to trust you God I'm going to turn my legacy over to you and I'm going to walk with you in faith today God can redeem and rewrite the legacy that you've left so that your kids and grandkids and everyone after you can look to you as a model of redemption if you look back at your legacy and you say well so far it's not been perfect, but it's going in a pretty positive direction, then my challenge for you is excel still more. Don't get comfortable. Because it's not over until it's over. You need to keep fighting for faith, and you need to recognize that according to the examples of Scripture, the greatest failures in the Bible happened when people were up here, not down here. They had grown so much in their faith. They had succeeded so much for God. And then they fell. So don't grow complacent. Excel still more. Keep fighting for faithfulness so that through you, God can build a positive legacy of faithfulness that blesses generations to come. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. It's our prayer for our church. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we do pray that you would do whatever is required in each of our lives individually To grow us into men and women of such trust, of such faith, that we would walk with you the rest of our lives. We pray, Lord God, that you would do whatever it takes in each of our lives to keep us from making Gideon's error. We pray that you would do whatever it takes to help us to remain faithful to the end of our lives. Keep us humble before you. Keep us dependent upon you and dependent upon your people and your word. Help us never to buy into the lie that we've grown enough, that we've become enough, that we've got this thing figured out. I pray that we would stay, in a sense, as children before you, constantly looking to you for help. I pray, Lord, that you would be with us. We do lift up those in this room who are in the midst of a really painful period, who are struggling. We pray, Lord, that they would sense your presence and that they would remember Gideon's victory, that they would remember that it doesn't matter how much the odds are stacked against them, that if they have you, they have everything they need. I pray that you would help them to walk with you in the valleys. And I pray for those in here who are on the mountaintops, who are enjoying a good period of life. Help them to continually and constantly give thanks to you for that and never forget you. I pray, Lord, that you would work in us so that we would be the kind of men and women who leave a legacy behind us of faithfulness, of humility, of love, of dependence so that our children, our grandchildren, our community can learn from us what it looks like to follow you. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us this week. Help us to follow your son more closely each and every day. In his name we pray, amen. Well, God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.